Gary Cole. You're listening to the Football Coaching Life, a podcast brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and Making Media, the podcast professionals. This is a rare treat for me because today's guest is Ron Smith. Uh, I met Ron a long, long time ago when he tricked me into doing my first coaching course um, at the ripe old age of 19. He was a coaching mentor to me as he has been to many players and, and obviously perhaps most famously known for the, his work at the AIS and, and helping to develop our golden generation. I'm going to leave it there as an intro and, and go straight over to Ron. Ronnie, welcome along. Thank you for joining the podcast today. Thanks, Gaz. It's a pleasure, always, and uh, always nice to have a chat with you. Thanks, mate. I'm cognizant we've got an hour, so let's get this show on the road. How did you get into coaching? Uh, by accident, really. I, when I went to college to become a phys ed teacher, part of the course was to do the FAE preliminary award which I did and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I was very fortunate that one of our lecturers at college was an FA staff coach and he coached our team. So uh, I, I very quickly became intrigued by the game because of his influence. And uh, that was me hooked on coaching. Having said that, I, I never dreamt that I'd ever be a full-time coach. <laughs> You've been doing that for a wee while now. Just over, what, 45 years? <laughs> <laughs> and most people um, will know about the AIS and because of, you know, some of the wonderful players that it produced. Most people aren't going to have a clue about how it's set up. Uh, and there's a couple of interesting stories there. So what can you tell us about the, those early days when you were assistant to um, Jimmy Shoulder at the AIS about how the football program got up and running? Well, in its infancy, it was the brainchild of Sir Arthur George, who was the president of the Australian Soccer Federation at the time. He, Sir Arthur was very well connected politically, and he knew that the AIS was going to open and persuaded the government to give us the opportunity to put team in there because we were going to be the host nation for the 1981 Youth World Cup. And that was only the second World Cup where everybody could... Um, apply to play in it and FIFA's objective at that time was to spread the gospel yep. uh, to you know outside Europe and South America so Australia uh, became a prime target and everything kind of came together at the right time uh, there's some funny stories about you know how we managed to survive in there at the AIS and what happened in the beginning which I might <laughs> tell you about um, but that, that was it, really. That's how it happened. Tell us um, how many um, football scholarships were going to be available first up for a football program. <laughs> well, um, I wasn't there because in the first year, there were only head coaches. And I came in as an assistant in year two. But um, Jimmy had great delight. Jimmy Shoulder was the first head coach. They had a meeting and Peter Bowman and... Uh, was the one giving out the good news. And he said, okay, so all the head coaches, there were only eight sports in the beginning. So it wasn't a, you know, a, a big meeting, but he said sort of like track and field, you know, you've got 26 scholarships, um, basketball, men's and women's, you've got 12 scholarships in each and football, you've got eight. And <laughs> you've got so-and-so. And at the end of it, he said, has anyone got any questions? And Jimmy said, well, he said, I've got one, Pete. He said, we've got a little bit of a problem. Pete said, what's that? He said, well, 
He said, we need at least 11 to play a game. And he said, we can't survive a whole season with just 11 players. And Pete said, oh, he said, I didn't know that. <laughs> so uh, he said, well, how many do you need? Jimmy said, well, at least 16. So he got down on a bit of paper. He said, okay, track and field, you've got 24. <laughs> Basketball, you've got 10 each, not 12. So we got our 16 scholarships and that was it. <laughs> So uh, we used to have great delight in joking about that one. But it, it highlighted um, how little information was known about football generally by other sports people yeah. at that time. And that was 1981. So uh, we've come a long way since then. Ron, it was a, a wonderful program. I had an opportunity to join you uh, as an assistant coach and, and it was a great foundation for my learning um, straight from a professional career. Why do you think the AIS was successful? I've thought long and hard about that, Gary, um, more so since I left. And I, I think there are a couple of uh, things that led to its success. One was the opportunity to influence the players over an extended period of time, which was a minimum 12 months. It could have been 18 months. It may have been... 24 months, depending on uh, the scholarships and the age of players. But I think having the opportunity to train every day with other very good players in a great facility and with coaches who were focused on trying to improve the individual above teamwork and uh, all of the other support services made a major contribution a, to what we could offer the players collectively as an organisation, but also in helping the coaches understand a lot more about how sports science could be applied and so on. Yeah. And uh, I, I look back on my career and a, as a coach, I, I think it was an ideal place for me to work in because I've, I've always been a bit curious about trying to do things a better way. Um, I've never been one to just do the same old, same old. And, um, you know, so I, I really enjoyed working in that environment. Ron, how important, I, 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 as I said before, I was, had the, the pleasure of being your assistant for a while and, and learning about coaching. And I can't, what, what intrigued me was how much I learned about football in the, my, 12, my first 12 months as a coach that I didn't understand or know having played it for, you know, played the game for so long. Quite often we hear the term, you know, let the game be the teacher. Um, and maybe because I was a bit thick, but I didn't learn, I didn't learn all the lessons, which, which I then had the opportunity to learn as a coach. Um, where do you, where do you sit on this? Let the game be the teacher as opposed to providing people with learning opportunities and, and changing behaviors, which was such a key part of what, you we did at the AIS. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think let the game be the teachers become a, a bit of jargon. Uh, I, if I look back on my own career uh, as a young player, the first time I learned anything about the game was when I went to college and I actually met what I would call a coach, somebody who actually taught. Up until then, I realised that all the so-called coaches that I'd had and I spent uh, nine months at Tottenham, by the way, 
um, as a youth player, um, I, I realised then that they didn't teach us anything. In fact, um, we used to joke that the two or three of us that used to go home on the same route, we used to judge how well we trained by how much abuse we got. Um, you know, and, and that, I think that was standard. There was zero teaching from my knowledge. And I wasn't one who, you know, learned anything about the game other than that, you know, if, if we score more than you, we're going to win. And if we don't, <laughs> we're in trouble. Uh, I just used to put a shirt on and go out and play. And I've, I've since thought to myself, were there any things that I actually learned as a player? And I say to people, well, maybe I was just stupid as a player, but the game taught me nothing. And um, so I, I think that that may be only for really smart people. And I don't think they're in the majority. So that's my honest opinion. Uh, I'd much prefer to work with people who will teach you. And there's different ways of teaching. Of course. You, you need somebody to educate you about the game. So and that, that for me, the, the thing that really sticks out for me, and I've, I've still, when I moved from the AAS into coaching, came back to Victoria and coached in the Victorian Premier League and, and, and the old NSL, what stuck with me was what we spent more time working on behaviours to help individual players get better than we did with systems. The systems would change from week to week and, and you taught me that, you know, if the players had great behaviours based on what the best players in the world did, then they could fit into any system. Do you, do you think that's still, uh, that's a fair assessment and, and is it still applicable? Um, a, I think it's a great assessment and B, it's absolutely applicable um, because I've put presentations together to show what really top players were doing 40 years ago and what the good players do last week and the behaviours you can see. And if, if those behaviours have been consistent, then I don't see any reason why we should think it's gonna change next week or over the next few years. Um, and the, the reason I, as a coach, uh, Gary, um, kind of like got into the teaching of behaviour was I, I, I made a kind of a commitment to myself when I first went to coach at the IS. Nobody would have known me really from a bar of soap. I hadn't played for Australia or I hadn't even played as a full-time professional football. But I was a student of the game. And one of the things that I, I kind of said to the, the players when they came in was, if I can show you what the best players in the world do, do you think that's a good starting point? And everyone said, absolutely. So it was upon me then to try and analyse what players did and say, these are the common factors. You can all control these things if you want to and if you're able to do it. Now, not everybody can change their behaviour. Uh, and it, it, for some people, it takes a long time. Some people never get there, but some can sort of modify what they do very quickly. Yeah. And so what, what, what I found and you found, is when I say I, I'm talking about we, uh, you know, generally, um, the, the players that get it can then start to modify what they do and what they look at and what they look for um, very quickly in some cases. And uh, so they're the things that you don't know until you actually expose players to 
the environment and the information that you want to convey to them by looking at what good players have done in the past and what they do currently. Thanks, Ron. The, the, um, I, I want to, you spoke about analysing good behaviours there and I've got a raft of questions about game analysis because obviously that, that became a very uh, important and integral part of your career. But just while we're talking about the AIS, even though I was a part of it, I don't think I fully understood how important the State Institute of Sports were in terms of the overall development program for young boy footballers here in Australia. Obviously, when, when we were doing that, there wasn't a program for the girls. But, but can you explain how that relationship with the State Institutes worked um, with the age groups and, and developing the, the player development pathway? Yeah. Um, ten years after the AIS started, um, basketball managed to get a state-based program. And Pat Hunt, who was one of the basketball coaches there, along with Adrian Hurley, I, I went straight round to a, the basketball office and I said, Oi, Pat, I said, tell me how you did this. I said, because this is a no-brainer. We've got to have the same programs. So he, he filled me in. And it was a combination of funding from state government and the AIS or the federal funding, state funding, and also some from the member federations. So we very quickly, uh, I went to see Jim Ferguson, uh, who was the head of the AIS at the time or sports commission as it had become in the early nineties. And so it, that was it, it was the, the immediate plan. So uh, we, by 1993, I think the first program may have been in 92 was in WA and Ron Tyndall was the first coach to run the West Australian Institute of Sport. That was very closely followed then by the Victorian Institute and New South Wales and so on. So within the space of probably 12 months, we had a program in almost every state. Um, and what we did then was to say, we don't want to have the same age group at state level because we, let's say we've got six programs and we've got 18 kids in each. There's over a hundred lads all in the one age group. So I, I went at great length to try and say to the people at the state level, pick the best kids you think you can find for the Joey's age group, which in those days were boys basically born <clears throat> in the even years. And so the AIS, which was for the youth age, was for boys born in the odd years. So at the state level, we wanted the core nucleus to be born in the even year. So for example, if, um, if, if the youth age was 97, then boys born in 96 would, would have been in say like the VIS and the State Institute program. So as introduced under 17s, yes. under 20s. Yes. Um, and so, and, and then, so I said, if, if you've got eight or 10 in the Joey age group, you may then start looking at some of the boys that are knocking on the door, but we could only bring in 16 outfield players. So it would be great environment and for us to be able to keep tabs on lads that were in the youth age. So that 12 months older than the Joey's age. And also a few younger ones that might be, you know, um, showing signs of becoming good players but they would be able to get the benefit of being into what you might call a, a full-time program and also 
being able to train with older players of good quality. And so the state institutes became a real composite squad. Um, and that worked really well. That worked really well. And it also gave us the opportunity um, to look at, because the Joeys, even though they were younger, they played before the youth. And so we could look at the boys in the Joeys and say, well, we think he might have a chance of playing in the youth team as well. And so 12 months after the age group started at the AIS, some of the boys would go to clubs. Uh, they'd have finished their schooling. And so our next object then was to get them into the NSL. And so if somebody left after 12 months, we then had a vacancy for either another older player that we couldn't bring in in the first year, or we could bring in a, a lad who played in the under 17 national team that we thought had a really good chance of playing in the youth team as well. Yeah. So that was, that was how it kind of worked. Quite, quite remarkable. And, and the, the, the quality of players that, that went through the doors is just incredible um, for the time. Congratulations. <laughs> well, it wasn't just, it was, it was a real team effort. I, I had the responsibility of polishing the diamonds, let's put it that way. You know, in their, in their last um, 12 to 18 months before they all left and then went into the NSL, which is the time then when Les Scheinflog, who was the national youth coach, he could then start selecting the youth squads and getting ready to actually play in the next Youth World Cup. Yeah. You're listening to The Football Coaching Life brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and Making Media, the podcast professionals. And our guest today is Dr. Ron Smith, uh, walking down memory lane with us about his coaching journey, which is, uh, which is wonderful news. Ron, you've, you're 72 years young. Um, you're currently Trevor Morgan, working with Trevor Morgan at Football Australia as a technical consultant, uh, technical advisor. Um, not the first time that you've had that role, I've tried to go through it today. You've worked with Gusset Inc. You've worked with Pim Verbeek. Um, you've worked with Jimmy Shoulder, your assistant soccer coach way back, way back when. Um, you've worked with Arnie uh, and the Olympic teams. You've worked with a whole bunch of people in either an assistant coach role or um, an analysis role. How, you know, that, that's, a, that's an incredible evolution, but I'm not even quite sure how you can package this up, but how has your coaching changed over the journey? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, what I can say, Gaz, is that my approach to coaching has, is, is based on uh, keeping an open mind and being able to adapt. So like for, for the first 20 years of my coaching career, I, I, never used or seen a software program to assist with the analysis of the game. Yeah. I was fortunate that happened to me early on in the piece when I was the coaching director in Malaysia. And so for the last 20 years, I've been used to using software uh, to investigate more of and, and, and get evidence, if you like, about what actually happens in the game then and what do players do and how often do they do it and all that sort of stuff. You can do that with computers. But in our day at the OS, you know, they hadn't been invented. Yeah. <laughs> it was only after I left. Um, learning from other coaches, um, the, the reasons why people do things. 
and attention to detail. I know it's a bit of a cliche. Holger always used to say, the devil is in the detail. And he was, he was absolutely spot on. And um, Jimmy always used to say, it's the little things that make the big difference. And what I found is that the, the approach for me as a coach, when I moved into competitive football, when I first went to Malaysia, my first four years there were in club football. And I took over teams that were struggling. My first gig was to try and prevent a club from getting relegated. And we did that quite successfully. And that laid the pathway then for me um, to get job offers for the next 20 years in Malaysia. <laughs> but my approach was quite different to working at the AIS. Uh, and what I would say then is it became about you've got to win the next game or you're going to get relegated or you've got to get X number of points out of the remaining six matches. So I, I tried to, first of all, stop conceding goals because the defending of the team that I took over was awful. So I said, basically, we are going to stop giving away soft goals. And oh, by the way, you three are going to go and play up front. I put my central midfield player as a central striker. And I said, you're going to have two players to support you. The rest are not going to get there. All we're going to do is we're going to play up to you because we're in monsoon season as well. And so we had a strategy to try and win games. And I took over a team that had won two of their last 13 and we won five of our last eight and drew one. And, and went from 13th out of a 15 team competition to fifth in the league. So I became like an instant hero. And even more important was that the players then believe in whatever you ask them to do, you know, until you start losing. <laughs> but, you know, fortunately, the following season, we actually won the league without signing another player. So we went from the bottom league. And in a way, that's probably my, on an individual level, that was probably the, the greatest achievement I, I've had in terms of winning games. But it's getting buy-in from players. You often... It, that term now is, uh, you know, is a, is a common one. But the, the big shift in, in coaching was to say, I've got to make the best out of what I've got. Now, um, so how I, how I use those, and the result was the most important thing. But to get the result, I had to keep trying to work with the individuals to make their jobs a bit easier for them to do and for them to become better at doing their jobs. So the final analysis, guys, is that you still have to work with individuals if you can't go and buy them or sign them. And, you know, many coaches in today don't try and improve players because they haven't got time. Yeah. They'll buy a solution. Um, and I can understand fully why that is. Yeah. If you can't buy a solution or, you know, get a loan player or anything like that, then the only real way is to actually try and improve the individual, which is exactly what we did at the AIS. Can I ask you then, Ron, at the AIS, it wasn't about results. It was about developing individuals and helping them to become better players. <clears throat> Excuse me. Whether we won on the weekend or not was irrelevant. We always wanted to win games and it was always about trying to win, but the result wasn't. There was no pressure to, to win. Yes. You move across um, 
Iceland and uh, where you coached and then to Malaysia in, in that professional environment where it's all about the result. It's yeah. not about developing players. Well, it is as long as you can win the game as well. How, how did you cope personally with, with going from a non-pressure environment to the, the full-on pressure environment? Honestly, I loved it. <laughs> I, to say it gets the adrenaline pumping, uh, to put it mildly, and also, um, when, when I first went to Sabah in, uh, in East, um, East Malaysia, um, the, the attitude was, um, it was despair. Uh, everybody had their chin on the ground and everything else. And I think our average crowd was about 3,000. Within a few wins, we were filling the stadium with 22,000 people. They're hanging off the roof and... Uh, the atmosphere was just unbelievable, and I loved every minute of it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, as all coaches know, when it's going good, enjoy it, because it ain't going to go good forever. And you know you're going to get sacked sooner or later. Make hay uh, while the sun shines. Make hay while the sun shines, yeah. So I, I actually loved it, but I loved the challenge then. And also... Once, once players start to, you develop a relationship with the players and you're trying to actually help them do a better job, on the one-to-one -one level, I think that's, that's where you get the buy-in and the players appreciate you trying to help them become a better player. I had one really top player uh, in, in Sabah, um, along with... Scott Yoller and Shaw, who was responsible in a way for me going there. But Ollie was a good player. I'd never worked with, but I didn't realise Ollie was as good as he, as he appeared to be as a central striker, which is a position he, he really got an opportunity to play in in Australia. But Ollie was a great finisher. And I think, I, I look back and I think if he'd been given the opportunities to play in the middle rather than out wide, I think he would have played a lot more soccer games. Yeah. But, a player said to me, he was a 32-year-old um, player from um, Yugoslavia originally, and he said to me, I, when I started just working with him on getting where he could see who was marking him, he said to me, coach, I won't impersonate his, his broken English, but he said, coach, if somebody had told me this 10 years ago, he said, I would have played all of my career in the first division instead of half of it yeah. <laughs> so yeah. he got it straight away and he went oh wow this is just making my life so much easier in the middle of the park so little things like that um are really rewarding as you know so yeah, absolutely ronnie you've been i don't know if you set out consciously to become a mentor to, to people like me and, and ernie merrick and, and many many others but i just wonder whether you had a coaching mentor and how important that was and how important you think that is today? Uh, yes, I, I, I think um, very important. Um, Jimmy Shoulder was, wasn't much older than me, but Jimmy had had, uh, he was 29 going on 42 as a coach. The experience that he'd had at a young age was incredible. And um, I learned a lot from Jimmy. I also had... Uh, Eric Worthington, who was the 
coaching director at the time when I first uh, took a job on as a coach educator. Um, he, he was very knowledgeable as well and influenced my thinking. Um, and the other one who was a great mentor to me was Ron Tindall, um, former Chelsea West Ham uh, player, a coaching director in WA, um, and a real thinker about the game. Uh, the conversations that we used to have, um, you know, were so good. And he reflected so much on what he'd learned and under certain managers like Ron Greenwood, who he played under at West Ham, who was the England manager and so on. And so all of the anecdotal stuff about what happened in certain situations and what the manager did and, you know, what you may have experienced yourself. Um, I, I would always uh, look forward to conversations and had no hesitation in ringing uh, Ronnie and saying, uh, I want to talk to you about this. I want to pick your brains, you know, and uh, it's, I, I think everybody needs, needs a mentor. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's in the professional game today. It's, it's becoming more and more popular. You know, national team coaches are, are bringing in mentors to be able to, watch what they do, watch their coaching team environment, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So certainly going to be a growth industry. But um, for most coaches out there, um, you know, if you're a coach in a community club, clubs today in, in different areas have technical directors. And I'm of the area where a technical director was actually coach of the coaches um, as well as you know, responsible for the for the player pathway, but in a lot of a lot of times today, it seems that technical director in, in a number of clubs means you're the person that deals with the angry parents whose kids aren't getting enough game time, um, and I'm not quite sure how much help they're out there being able to offer coaches. So, in in the, the modern environment, how does a a young coach, whether that's in the high performance area um, or, or that grassroots area, how, how do they get better? Apart from making mistakes. <laughs> well, mistakes is if you learn from them. Um, that's, a, that's a real tough one, that, Gaz. Um, so much of it comes down to personal relationships and knowing people. And also, I suppose, being open with yourself that you're, 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 you're opening yourself up to say, hey, I want some, I'd like some help. You know, would you, would you help me? And not everybody can do that or feels that they should do that or wants to do that. But if you are of that ilk, then I think the best thing is to go and approach somebody that you think may be able to help you Yeah. in the area that you think you need help. Or it may be across the board. You might say, look, I'd like you to share some of your knowledge and experience with me. Um, and so I think you've got to be proactive, number one and accept opportunities to get some feedback if somebody volunteers. So in a club environment, if you have somebody use coaching coordinator or the, co or the TD for want of a better term within a club, if they say, look, I'm here to try and help you, <clears throat> then don't be afraid to say, okay, you know, would you come and watch me coach? Or would you have a coffee with me and let's talk about the game or talk about some of the problems that I've got and how would you solve them? Yeah. You know, so you open the door to conversation, then possibility. And the best way, I think, is to work with people practically. To say, look, I'm doing this. Why? 
this is the reason why I'm doing this and I'm not doing that at the moment. Oh, that's interesting. So why are you, so how are you going to go about doing so-and-so? And so you get the understanding and the rationale behind why people have organized things a certain way or why they've just ignored what's just happened because that's not the major priority at the moment. And so in that conversation, you get that opportunity. Um, I, can, I can say this, that one of the things that um, I've been working obviously closely with Trevor, Trevor Morgan, who's the TD now, um, and he's got some great ideas around uh, getting coaches uh, CPD points for mentoring yep. and being available to help. And in some cases, giving people the choice to do it as a way of um, getting their continual professional development or CPD points going forwards. Yeah. It may be that, let's say, you know, I get sacked next year and I'm out of work for 12 months. I might put my sand up and say, I'm happy to, to, to do some mentoring yeah. while I'm looking for a job or, you know, that sort of thing. And, and, and Trevor's very keen to, to try and implement some, um, you know, ideas and ways of making that work, which I think is a, a really proactive step. Yeah, I like that. C continuing that theme, how, how have you used other coaches from sports outside of football to learn and grow your knowledge about coaching? Uh, mainly from reading, um, because in the ACT, we're a bit isolated. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been living here since 1981. Um, I've, I've, I've gone at great lengths to try and talk to other coaches within, you know, like football. Yeah. Yes, everybody does that because of, of what I've just said about, you know, finding out why, why do you do that or why do you believe this? Um, so uh, I've, I've read a, a, a few books and one that, that I found really, really useful was The Winner Within by Pat Riley. And he talked about his 10 years in charge of the LA Lakers and how he got the job and the things that he experienced, like what he called in chapter one, the innocent climb. And then once you've had a bit of success, um, you then get the disease of me comes in. And I experienced this and I only read the book after I gone to coach overseas in the competitive environment and everything that he had in this book happened it was <laughs> like chapter one the innocent climb we went from the bottom of the league survived relegation got in the final malaysia cup won the league the next year um and then all of a sudden the disease of me started to creep in and that was a really it was almost like this is coming to life you know, I've read about this and now it's actually happening. So for me, it was a great preparation in terms of how am I going to deal with it? So uh, that was one book that really sticks in my mind. I've read, you know, other books. John Buchanan uh, wrote, wrote a great book about, um, uh, you know, he's, he's coaching and management style in cricket and so on. So uh, there are a couple that, you know, have sort of stood out to me. Thanks, Ron. You're listening to... The Football Coaching Life podcast brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and Making Media, the podcast professionals. Our guest today is Ron Smudger-Smith and we're wandering down memory lane. Um, Ronnie, why do you do it? Why do you still coach? Um, <laughs> my wife keeps asking me that, guys. <laughs> um, 
I just, I guess I'm in love with the game. Uh, I, I really love helping people. And I'll tell you a funny story. Some years ago when my dad was alive, I don't know where it came from, but we had this horoscope book and it, it didn't, and I used to think star signs were a load of rubbish um, until later on in life. And certain things happened and I started to think, now this is too much of a coincidence. It's, it's not an accident. But he was looking through the book because it gave a, a, a kind of a synopsis of what you like if you're born on a certain day. And my dad, uh, he said to me, he confided in me, I know what it was. We were at a dinner party and a friend brought the book out and he read the, the star sign for the day of his dad. And he said, it made the hairs on my arms stand up. And so anyway, so that was, we were all intrigued. So anyway, we, we actually bought the book because we wanted to, we thought, oh, this is, you know, worth looking at a bit more detail. And I was getting into that. I think there's something in this star sign business around the time. And anyway, Alison read mine and started laughing. And I said, what are you laughing at? And she said, well, the last line sums you up perfectly. And I said, what's that? And she said, well, it says on your star sign, people born on the May the 5th are born to enlighten others. And she said, that's a polite way of saying you're a pain in the ass because you're always telling people what to do. <laughs> and I said, oh my God, am I like that? Am I, maybe people see me that I'm a right pain in the ass because I'm always suggesting things to try and help them. So from that time on, Whenever I was sort of ready to volunteer an opinion, I used to bite my lip and sort of take a backward step first and then say, well, I'm not, if, if you like, I, you know, I can make a little suggestion to what I think might help you. And then if they said, oh, yeah, tell me, I, I would then sort of tell them what I thought. But um, that, that had a big impact on me um, individually. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's... Uh, I, think that, uh, I think that sums you up. <laughs> Tell me, one of the people that you helped, I know, was Gerard Houllier, who unfortunately has recently passed away. But, but Gerard invited you to, uh, to Liverpool to spend some time there. Yeah. T tell us a little bit about that relationship. Well, uh, I'll tell you how it started. Um, it was to do with when he was going to sign Harry Kiel. By that time, <clears throat> um, I, I knew... Uh, Bernie Mandich, who was Harry's manager at the time, and I'd spoken to him um, a bit, a, a bit at length about interesting things about playing football and so on, and also about uh, Harry, you know, um, what certain things that Harry did um, in the game and so on, and I had those discussions with Harry, but he'd, he'd mentioned to Gerard Houllier uh, about me in passing just in general conversation about some of the research I'd been doing into the way goals were scored and so on. And uh, at the time I was coaching in Malaysia, but he rang me and he said, would you like to have lunch with Gerard Houllier? <laughs> so I said, who's this winding me up? You know? And he said, no, I'm serious. He said, but you'll have to fly to Paris. <laughs> so I said, well, I'll fly anywhere to have lunch with Gerard Houllier. So I did, but I had to pick a time when I could get like, you know, four or five days, uh, and we had an international break in Malaysia. So we organised it. I was going to meet him in Paris and have lunch, which we did. 
I showed him some of the stuff that I'd been doing about game analysis. And uh, he said, um, while we were having lunch, he, he said, would you fly tomorrow and meet the CEO of Liverpool at Manchester Airport and show him what you're doing? That was Rick Parry. So I said, it was a bit hard to say, no, I'm, I've got a bus tour around Paris booked with the wife. So I said, yeah, I'd love to. So anyway, that was it. I was there, two-hour meeting with Rick, came back, showed him what I'd been doing and so on. And then Gerard very kindly said to me, would you like to come and spend some time at Liverpool um, with me? And I said, I would absolutely love to. So uh, he said, you can come as long as you want. He said, one, two, three months, whatever. Um, I'll, I'll cover all the cost and uh, you'll be my guest. And I said, look, um, I'd love to come at the end of the season. I've got a four week window where I could do that. And so that's what happened. And I was um, like everybody. I, it wasn't just me that was made to feel special. Gerard Houllier made everybody feel special that came into his company. And everybody at Liverpool Football Club was treated with the utmost respect, as were guests that went there by everybody. And the culture that he instilled there was just fantastic. Um, and uh, so I was his guest. I, I gave um, the first assignment I had was to give a presentation to Phil Thompson and Sammy Lee. And which was a bit daunting, you know, there's little old me um, going in and giving two Liverpool stars and uh, English internationals a, a presentation about goal scoring. And, uh, but they, they were great. Um, and Sammy was such a, a bubbly character as well. He was out on the park uh, every day and, and so on. I was also given the privilege of being out to go pitch side, which was a pretty rare occurrence as I've as I learned while I was there, because um, at Mel Melwood, they had this balcony out the front of what the building where they had the medical center and the players, you know, rooms and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I was allowed on the pitch. So um, I, I got, you know, every day at training, um, it, it was just fantastic. And I could have individual meetings with Gerard as long as I made a booking because he was literally Gaz, he was busy from like eight o'clock in the morning till six at night. Um, and I used to sit outside his office some afternoons, just waiting to have a you know half hour chat with him about training or what he thought about Saturday's game and stuff like that. It was a wonderful experience for me and I absolutely treasured it. And um, I was very grateful um, to Gerard for giving me that opportunity. And did, did Gerard and Liverpool um, use the, the knowledge and wisdom that you're able to share with them? Um, I, I think so. <laughs> um, because he obviously, he, he wanted to find out more. I'm, I'm not going to go into detail, but he, he did give me some assignments uh, to get my opinion and, and look at the, the way the game went on the weekend. Um, and he said, keep that between us. Don't even talk to the players about it, uh, which I did. You know, not talk to the players, but in keeping it. But um, yeah, I he I, I think Gerard, being an educator as well, he, he he was of that mentality that he didn't think he knew everything, and was always looking for something that might just make a little bit of difference. Like I said earlier, the devil's in the detail, and sometimes those little things can actually make the big difference, as Jimmy always used to say.
you, uh, that, that, that's a great segue into this. The, the, I know that you're a, um, a great believer in the, the principles of our game, um, depth and width and attack, et cetera, et cetera. We're not going to drill into that right now. I also know you're a great believer in innovation. You've analysed it, the game changes, the fitness level of players change. Uh, occasionally the rules change, not quite as much as some other sports, but it's there. So you've got this... Um, movable task which is innovation you know more more analysis more strength and conditioning etc etc more things for coaches to deal with and on the other hand there's some principles that some of us might see as the bedrock or the the foundations of the game where, where do you sit on innovation versus principles and and are the principles of the game are they a foundation are they a rock to be built on for all coaches well, first of all, yes, I, I think the principles are. Um, the fun of coaching is how you apply them. And that's what leads to the common term systems. Are you going to play with a back four or three at the back? Or do you have five at the back? Well, yes, you may be. How do you use people's capacities? Um, it, and to make the most out of what you've got in terms of winning a game on the weekend. I, I make a clear distinction, uh, Gaz, between how you would train younger players to help them become better players and have a career in the game um, compared with when you're in the competitive environment and you've got to win matches yeah. or you're going to get sacked. Is that simple? Um, so the, the principles guide everything. And it's, it's the way that you apply them and that, how you apply the principles, there are what's this underlying thing. We always used to talk about technique. You know, um, technique is, is what gives you the opportunity to make decisions. I may see things, but I know I can't deliver that. So it then becomes, well, it's, it's, a, it's not an option anymore. But the greater the range of technique that I've got, the more adaptable and imaginative I can become as a player because I might just decide I'm going to beat these two and score, you know, um, if you can. And so for me, developing technique is really, really important for all players. And it's something that you have to keep working at. Um, just like in other sports, the, the actual mastery of technique, um, people get hung up about decision-making and saying that you, you have to learn technique while making decisions. Well, if you're going to leave it at that, you won't get enough repetition to actually get really good at doing things. So you need to practice to be able to hit targets and receive the ball. You can do that anytime you want. And I don't know any good players that don't spend as young people an excessive amount of time trying to become good with their techniques. Then if, if we think about the behavior side of it, which has got a lot to do with what you do when you haven't got the ball. If you look at analysis, people work out that you can just judge it as a, you wouldn't have the ball for two minutes in a game. Yep. So you say, all right, so what am I doing then for the 98% of the game when I haven't got the ball? 
well they're the really important decisions it's so where do i run when do i run why do i run am i better off standing still and so on so you need to understand strategic thinking because that will dictate what you do when you haven't got the ball when it comes to defending okay you you can get really good team structure and organization so you all know what you're going to do collectively that's how you become effective defending the physical side of the game and this is where research comes in the physical side of the game will tell you what capacities you've got and as a team you're as strong as your weakest link so if, if you're asking somebody to do a lot of high intensity running but they're not a good enough athlete they're going to break down they're not going to be there when you need them and good teams will just pick you apart so little a little story while i was at liverpool for that month there was an international week all right and out of the 33 players in the first team squad at the time there were nine still playing or training during that week so there were 24 playing in world cup football and nine of gerard's squad weren't so during that week there was a i forget i can't remember his surname now but his first name was peter he'd been nine years at liverpool and it was his third year working with the first team squad and gerard and all the players had heart rate monitors on they're doing a conditioning session and we were out on the middle of the park at melwood and i said to him i said pete of all the years that you've been here at liverpool what's the one thing that separates the ones that survive and those that don't is it the ability to play the game or technique or is it the physical side of the game Gaz, he didn't miss a heartbeat he said to me ronnie he said it's the physical side of the game if you can't compete physically and meet the demands you got no chance he said we've had more good players through here than you could poke a stick at when you talk about is he a good player yes but he said if they can't survive the physical demands he said they don't survive they go down another level and that confirmed a lot of the early research data that we had around the profiling of players that we were doing in the late 80s and early 90s at the Institute of Sport. Because we got profile data on testing. We could then monitor where the lads finished up playing. Yeah. And I, I can tell you today, I don't think, if anything, the standards may have gone up a little bit, but those benchmarks, those benchmarks are still quite clear. If, if, if you can, and I'm talking here about speed over, 6, 10, 20 meters, the ability to reproduce maximal effort, aerobic capacity, skin folds. There are clear indicators. And then the rest is, are you a good enough player? You know, so could talk about that for quite a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, I'm, I'm keen to talk about uh, Joe Simonich in there oh. because I know what, what an impact. Can, can, you, can you sum that up in a couple of minutes about how that data and Joe Simonich ended up in moving from midfield to sweeper? Yeah, okay. Um, when I first brought Joe in, he was living locally. He wasn't even 15 years old. And we put him through a battery of tests along with all the other boys because it was just test time. And Doug Tumulty, who was our exercise physiologist at the time, great guy. Uh, Doug, he came over and he said to me, Ronnie, he said, you're going to have problems with this kid. And I said, 
which one? He said, the, the new boy, he said, Joe. I said, why is that, Doug? He said, at 14 k's an hour, he's, he's nearly maxing out. And he means he's, he's reaching his maximal oxygen uptake. And he said, most of the other guys, uh, they're cruising at about 75 to 80% of their VO2 max when they're running at 14 k's an hour. So I said, okay then. Um, and for the next two and a half years, we tried to improve his aerobic capacity up to the standard that we thought was a, an acceptable level, which was 60 mils per kilogram body weight. Our best we ever got out of Joe was 57. So anyway, we, we kept trying, kept trying. So fast forward two years, it goes to Ajax, has a trial there, and they didn't sign him. And we were all gobsmacked. So I can't believe it. These are supposed to be the smartest cookies on the planet. Anyway, came back, we got feedback, and their, their um, assessment was that they loved his skills. He was um, you know, very good in that regard, but he didn't fit the personality, their tips, whatever they had. And I said to Joe, I said, look, <clears throat> what they would have seen, Joe, was this gangly sort of stick insect running around the pitch, <laughs> looking like he was cruising. I said, they wouldn't have known that inside you were working at your maximum. I said, and so they probably thought, oh, no, he's not serious, you know? Because if you didn't know any better, that's, that's the sort of impression you'd get looking at body language. So at that point, I said, this is maybe confirming what I've suspected all along, and that is your engines are not going to be good enough to play in midfield at top level. So how about we start playing you as a centre-back? I said, you're tall, you're six foot four now. You know, I said, you're very quick. You're great on the ball. I said, and we can improve your defending because Joe had only ever played as a number 10 and scored goals and didn't know what panic meant. He was so composed, slotting goals in, you see. So anyway, I talked to Joe and his dad and they said, okay, it all makes sense. So that was um, how he became a centre back. And we, we worked with him for a year about risk taking. Little story, this one, you'll love this. Um, I said to Joe, Joe, you realise now that you mustn't nutmeg people in your own penalty area. I said, because if you do, you're going to drive coaches mental. I said, they'll all give you dog's abuse and everything else. So he went, okay, Ron, I'll remember that. Years later, when he was getting close to retiring, he said to me one day, he said, you know, I never forgot what you said about nutmegging people in my own penalty area. And he said, the only time I ever did it was when we had a 2 0 lead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, uh, I'm glad I wasn't coaching you then, Joe. <laughs> but, true story. Yeah. You're listening to the Football Coaching Life podcast brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and Making Media, the podcast professionals. Our guest today is Ronnie Smith. And Ronnie, we're almost out of time here. Um, I've got a couple more questions um, just to finish up with, um, albeit what I really need is two or three more hours because <laughs> there's just so much that, um, that I could ask. Can I ask you from, a, from your vast experience as a coach, what does success look like? You is in the eye of the beholder, Gaz. <laughs> um, success looks like winning things 
or being competitive more than non-competitive over a season, depending where you sit in the kind of food chain. If you're successful with a small team, okay, um, that is fantastic. Like I had um, I, in, in Saba, you know, that sort of set uh, my reputation that in Saba for years, uh, in Malaysia, I mean, because I took a team from the bottom and coached them and didn't sign any other players. Um, we were struggling, yes, but I didn't have the, the, the option and we couldn't get players to come to the club anyway, yep. you know, because we're in East Malaysia and, you know, um, I won't go into the, the re rationale behind that, but it was very difficult in those days. But um, winning things is obviously the ultimate. The next best thing, guys, is to have a chance of being success, successful or to win something for most of the season. Um, I've learned that in subsequent failures where I haven't, uh, you know, sort of been successful with teams. And um, you then focus on things. What can I control and what is beyond my control within that environment that you're in? And that's something that a lot of people never even think about when they're outside of a club. People outside just think that you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. Um, and a lot of times you can't do that. Um, and you may not have control over uh, the facilities, for example, um, which can have a profound impact on what you can do with players then. So all these other things that go on in the background, but going back to what does success look like, if, if you're a bottom half team consistently, then if you expect to win the league the next year, it, you, you may be getting a bit confused between ambition and ability, you know. But if you could make the top half of the table, which is the case in the Premier League, every team in the Premier League that gets in the top half is amazingly successful, okay? And you know that there's, there's probably four clubs that have got a chance of winning it. The other 16, it's just about not getting relegated. They know they've got Buckley's chance of winning the league. But that's the challenge. It's can you get over? And all the fans know it. Now, they'd all love you to win the league. Um, and look at Leicester. You know, I think it was 2015 when Leicester won the Premier League. Uh, I mean, all the others imploded above them and they, they came through like a racehorse at the getting over Beecher's Brook in the Grand National. Um, with younger players, the success is seeing them actually develop and go on to have a career in the game. That is really, I've found that to be really rewarding um, to think that you, you've, you've had a little bit of input into helping them, you know, sort of get everything that they dreamt of. Uh, out of the game and having a career. So, um, you know, I've been lucky that I've I've been around coaching a long time, and so I've done I've worked in both areas, and uh, yeah. So to have a little bit of success in both um, is really nice. I think you've had more than just a little bit, mate. The, the <laughs> number of coaches and players you've helped develop is um, too too long here to, um, to to call out. So congratulations on it. Last one here. Call on your sage-like ability. If you had one piece of wisdom 
you could offer to a coach that was beginning their journey or in the middle of their journey or at the end of their journey? What would that piece of wisdom be? Um, be honest with players and treat everyone with respect. Okay. Um, I've always tried to do that. And this might sound a bit weird, but uh, that was in my nature anyway, because that's how I was brought up as a kid. But I read a book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People about 30 years ago. And the author, Stephen Covey, in the book had said, if you died tomorrow, how would you want to be remembered? And whatever you want to etch on your tombstone, you've got to live your life that way. And I thought to myself, well, if I croaked it tomorrow, <laughs> and I did die twice when I had my heart attacks, by the way, <laughs> um, I, you know, I thought I would like somebody to say this about me. But I was fairly comfortable at that time in the way I treated others and shared knowledge and things like that. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons, Gaz, why um, I've, I've got a lot of friends in the game and because I've always been quite happy to share knowledge with and help people. As I say, that's kind of like in my birth sign anyway. So, you know, I can't say I did that intentionally. It's just, just the way I am. Um, but my, yeah, my advice, yeah, always be honest with players. Don't tell them that they're great when they're not. Um, and try and help them get, get better. Because as a player, I never went out to have a bad game. And I bet you didn't. You always want to go out and have a great game. So what happens? What goes wrong? Um, and it's no different for other players. So have that empathy and um, do what you can to help them. Sounds like a really good place to, to finish there, Ron. Thanks, Dr. Ron Smudger-Smith. Um, the wisdom is just um, absolutely remarkable as always. Um, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, um, and or interested in becoming a member of Football Coaches Australia, please look us up on footballcoachesoz.org.au. Thanks, Dr. Ron. We'll see you again soon. Yeah.